Hello, and welcome to the 21st episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast. We'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs, and sweat the details. We're not journalists, we're developers and computer scientists. I'm Douglas Shearer, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Wallace. Good evening. So I think the big news this week is that we've managed to add the podcast to our LinkedIn profiles, including getting the uh, image up there. It's, it's that all-important icon, really. I mean, uh, so if anyone would like to join a professional network. <laughs> On LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we can we can all look forward to the emails. Yeah, yeah do find us there. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think this week we'll um, quiz through some follow-up on our usual topics and then... Uh, I decided to make a bit of a show topic of a question we got from a listener, James Berlin, so we'll we'll get to that later, I think. Okay, cool. So I see you've dumped some follow-up in here. What have we got? Oh, actually, first item was me. Um, that uh, NVIDIA have put out some press releases at SciGraph about um, they're kind of officially endorsing professional eGPUs. So this is basically driver support for Quadros and eGPU enclosures. Yeah. The interesting thing here is one of the blessed manufacturers is Sonnet, who make the eGPU case that Apple providing their developer kit. Yeah, it definitely seems to be a, sort of a bit of a market-wide push to make these things a reality. Um, and I think it's certainly going to be better if it's not just a case manufacturer. Um, uh, Razer have been doing it for a while. You know, They provide an eGPU box for some of their uh, notebooks. But it's great if you get everybody on board, the notebook manufacturers, the people that are writing the operating systems, and the people that are making the video cards. Kind of keen to try it out, some, but I probably will. I mean, I've got an Alienware that supports their dedicated four-lane link, so at some point maybe I'll get one to try when I actually need a more powerful GPU in my lap attached to my laptop. Yeah. I still think it's a little bit of a niche use case. I mean, we've discussed this before. If I want an external box that's got a powerful GPU in it, I'll just get a whole other computer. It's mostly similar for me. Today I was looking at the possibility of getting a 4K or a 5K display as my normal like day-to-day display, and it seems even current generation Apple notebooks, like 13-inch size where they're using the Intel GPU, don't run them with any great pace. The performance is a bit sluggish, so maybe any GPU might work there. Um, the support yeah. certainly seems to be okay in the current, is it High Sierra uh, Mac OS beta? Yeah. But even when that's released, the OS itself, the eGPU feature is still going to be in beta for some time to come. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, I guess, if you want a 13-inch laptop, a slim 13-inch laptop that's still driving a high-resolution display, that's a, a certainly a use case. I mean, for me anyway, my 13-inch laptop's got a 6 gig 1060 in it, so it's got plenty of power for driving monitors, um, although it's fairly sort of thick, it's an inch thick, so yeah. Anyway, so I, th- I just thought that was interesting. I mean, whether or not these things will ever become mainstream, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's opening up some interesting possibilities. Because I mean, I guess if you got an eGPU, you'd be looking for an NVIDIA GPU. Yeah, exactly. And what we've got here, HEBC on, I presume this is AWS F1 instances. Yeah, so back in episode 12, we talked about Amazon's announcement of um, FPGA support on a, an instance type they've got called F1. Um, it was a certain type of FPGA. And I floated the idea maybe this could be used for video encoding and I never really thought about it anymore. And then a few days ago, someone pointed out to me that there's a company called NG Codec and they provide exactly that. It's a um, HEVC H265 encoder runs on the FPGA on the F1 instance. Um, it can do 30, or 32 simultaneous uh, streams. Uh, I think that's at 1080. I can't find the exact specs. That's got to be 1080, surely. 
Yeah, at, at 1080, um, 8 and 10 bit with HDR, um, and it has better quality than the slow preset and um, the X265 software encoder at 60 frames per second. If that was a single stream, I would say that was really impressive because it takes a lot of power to do 60 frames per second of HEVC. Um, and if they're doing 32 simultaneous streams, that's really impressive. Um, they do have pricing and such like. I think you might have to contact them about it. Um, you can either run it yourself or you can... I think you can um, just rent by the hour uh, as you use the instances. Um, but it's certainly cool to see it happening. I don't have a use for this, but if anyone does 32 live streams, this is the thing you want to be getting. It's quite interesting. I wonder what else we'll see appearing on Amazon's FPGAs. I should really have a proper look sometime. Okay, you've got another link here about... Oh, this is... I know what this is a link to. This is... Um, people have been fooling machine learning algorithms again with uh, tape, is it, in this one? Yeah, so this this example's tape. We previously talked about it, um, like face recognition systems, filling them with glasses with sort of fancy patterns on them and a few other different things. And this is yeah, street signs, where they just tape messages on them and it, it fills the sign. Um, but then they're in, in a more sort of scientific basis. They're like taking images that a neural network will recognise as a certain object. The example they've got here is a panda. They apply some white noise to the image, like mix the two images together, and then it no longer recognises the object in the image as a panda. Um, and they show this with a bunch of street signs and such like. And I guess this is it's an interesting as an adver- adversarial attack, but at the same time it maybe shows some limitations of certain neural networks for classifying objects and images. Yeah, I'd have to read the papers. I wonder if they had knowledge of the networks being used to generate their attacks. That's normally how these have previously worked. Yeah, certainly the certainly the pattern on the spectacles one. It was knowing how the how the neural network itself actually worked. Yeah, I mean here they're talking about the, the novelty that they're sort of saying is it's physical perturbations. They're not um, they're not modifying digital data. They're modifying the physical world and having things misclassified. So yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah. People are interested in AI and its strengths and weaknesses. Do follow the link. Um, you've got a, a link here in on Threadripper to get onto one of your usual CPU topics. Okay, so we've got uh, yeah, a bunch of CPU topics sort of lined up now, and I guess the rest of the show is actually CPU stuff. So this is, um, the reviews are finally out for AMD's Ryzen Threadripper CPUs, 16 cores, 32 threads. Um, the most uh, the most interesting thing for me on these CPUs is the first time consumers are going to have to have dealt with, um, I guess you'd call it memory affinity for a, a system. Um, anyone who's run dual CPU systems or four CPUs or eight CPU systems has had to deal with this before. So this is where the the CPUs have different modes. You can either run a Yuma mode or a Numa mode. Yuma is unified memory architecture, and that's where all the cores in the CPU have equal access to all the banks of main memory of RAM. And then there's Numa mode, which is where the software running on the CPU now has to know which banks of memory are assigned or are local to which half of the CPU, in this case, usually it's a socket on a dual socket system. So I think this is a great complication of consumer systems and it's certainly interesting to see how AMD are marketing this. They've got two different modes, creator mode and game mode, which switches the two depending on what you're doing. Um, But yeah, consumers have not had to consider this before. Yeah, I find even my experience, some other fairly technical users I've worked with have not, people don't seem to um, grasp the problems that you have going to two sockets. Often you take a a performance hit on many tasks going to two sockets until you're getting to many, many more threads just because of that penalty of the memories attached to the wrong CPU. So you're doing longer round trips for your data. You, You need to 
think about or accept the penalty of the fact that if if threads are switching from different physical CPUs as problems, you suddenly have to, you know, clear out or migrate your caches and things. And yeah, it's not it's not a straightforward sort of no brainer. You might find a faster single socket twenty core CPU is faster than two nominally faster ten cores, depending on what you're trying to do with them. Yeah, I mean, the, this is due to the AMD, and it's the same on the this, this sort of Ryzen seven and other CPUs, like lower core CPUs, where they've got multiple multiple dies on the same package um i mean you see how big the cpu package is i mean it's basically they've stuck two cpus together and and called it a day (laughs) yeah yeah it's 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 yeah properly massive like it's a really really big cpu um and antec go into the details of this in their review they've got a whole whole separate page about the numa numa issues and then in their benchmarking section they actually run the benchmarks in the different modes to see how things get on and then most tasks, creative tasks, were about nine, nine or I think about ten, less than ten percent down when running in game mode, and games are like less than ten percent down. Yeah, so Threadripper certainly looks interesting. I don't think most people are going to have to worry about the Numa Uma issues. Um, the performance of the CPUs seems great. If you want sixty PCI lanes on a CPU of any size, it's probably the thing to go for right now. I wonder if they've solved the stability problems they had under linux right there was problems with that we talked about previously yeah i think there's still a few outstanding issues in some of the in the linux kernel and some of the distributions um i imagine over time that might get fixed we'll see yeah so another cpu news we've had uh, a whole bunch of um intel news i noticed you put some links in here about canon lake and coffee lake and this is kind of prompted by the leaks of the coffee lake which is eighth gen intel cpu lineup leak right yeah so the well yeah we'll go for Coffee Lake first. Coffee Lake is the successor to KB Lake for desktop size chips. So that's your like forty five or you know four core chips. The default is now going to be six core on i fives and i sevens rather than four core that it was previously. And the i threes are now four core rather than two core. Four core with hyperthreading i three here as well. Yeah, some of the. There is, there is a few changes. The four core with hyperthreading is the i3 8350K. We previously talked about the 7350K, which is the unlocked i3. Um, and I can't remember, is it unlocked? Is it, sorry, does it have hyperthreading? Yeah, of course an i3 has hyperthreading. So actually the interesting one here is the four core i3 8100, which is four cores with no hyperthreading, which is currently classed as, yeah, two cores and no hyperthreading is a Pentium class processor. So there's a few changes in the lineup. This is just a leak of the the speeds, top end speeds down a tiny bit, which you'd expect with getting another fifty percent cores on the die. So well, I don't know. They're still boosting up to four point seven gig. That's pretty. Uh... Yeah, that's the Turbo Boost Max we talked about previously with the um, the sort of high end desktop chips. Yeah, four point seven gigahertz for two cores. Yeah, it's pretty speedy for sort of single threaded tasks. Yeah, so I think it was, I mean, you're talking about confusion over this, but it was back in episode 14 we were talking about how they were splitting out the generations into a notebook generation, which was Canon Lake, and then the desktop generation afterwards. I mean, to me, this this kind of makes some sense, because, I mean, the mobile chips are where the money is, right? It's... Yeah, these, these chips are fundamentally different. I mean, at one end you've got chips that are 5, 10, and 15 watts, and at the other end that some of the, the larger Xeons are now... Like, nearly 200 watts you know there's definitely the one architecture doesn't stretch to the two things and it seems to make sense that they're making the change a lot of this is because they feel 
that for the desktop chips and the larger chips, they've got a good, reliable setup with 14 nanometer, and they feel that the smaller chips can make or take better advantage of the 10 nanometer in the short term. So anyway, this kind of CPU news, it links nicely onto our main topic for today, which is I, I saw, a, a, after our last episode, I saw a tweet from James Berlin saying, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but he said, it looks like the iPhone 8 is going to have more compute power than my MacBook. Surely this is the beginning of the end of Intel's CPUs and Macs. And I, I replied to him, probably not, and uh, <laughs> I said I'd go into it in the podcast, because I think this is, like, we've touched on this before, and it's an interesting topic, and I'd expand this more generally to, say, Intel CPUs anywhere, although Apple are the obvious candidates to make an architecture change if anyone is, because they control the entire stack. It makes them easier to force it through. Yeah. This We'll get on to it, but the software is the tricky thing, right? I mean, they've been through architecture changes before, but it's not painless. No, no, definitely not painless. I mean, the PowerPC Tex 86, for example. So my answer to this tweet was, I don't think they will replace anytime soon. And the sort of TLDR version is, there's a lot of extra I.O. on an Intel chip, and they scale to far higher power consumptions and still increase performance, which the ARM does not as yet. But the software story is, I think, more of a problem. But anyway, this kind of led me down a rabbit hole of, so I say that as an answer, but what's actually different? What do you get on an x86 chip that you don't get on a typical ARM chip? Is the performance nearly there? So, I mean, I've got some links in here comparing uh, the detailed performance on Geekbench for a sort of mid-level i5 and a mid-range MacBook Pro iPad Pro 10.5, so a, a latest uh, iPad Pro CPU. This isn't quite apples to apples. That's a 15-watt dual-core i5 against a 5-watt-ish iPad CPU. But, I mean, it, it kind of makes my point, right? Intel chips can scale up a bit more as well, right? Yeah. Uh, have you had a look at these numbers yet? Yeah, I've had, the, I've had the quick look. Um, so, I mean, basically, let's let's choose a classic compute benchmark, which is would be the SGEMM benchmark. That's uh, matrix multiplication, right? This is floating point arith- arithmetic this is you know your classic hardcore compute and the ipad is being destroyed by the intel cpu here. yeah intel cpu is about 25 percent faster for this nearly task. double on that 92 gigaflops against 50 <laughs> oh sorry i'm looking at the multi-core yeah you're yeah, right yeah. yeah yeah and even in the multi-core right it's uh it's uh vastly better so i mean and they scale up even higher than that, right? I mean, this is only a 15-watt chip. You get up to sort of 45-watt chips. In, um, but, I mean, you could make the the converse argument. I mean, you could compare against the 5-watt Core M chips, which are more directly comparable. But then I would I would make the argument that if if you were changing over to ARM laptops, why would you have some laptops on ARM with the same OS as some other laptops that weren't on ARM? And then, you, you know, you have binaries that aren't compatible with both of them and so on and so forth. And yeah. Maybe that would be a feasible thing if everyone got all their apps from the Mac App Store, but yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. You know, that's just from a pure compute side. I mean, okay, let's just say at some point they become more powerful, but I don't think that, you know, in a sort of per watt, compute per watt, they're not necessarily much better. They're maybe more efficient at the low end because they don't do a lot of stuff that the Intel chips do. Yeah. But they, they just don't scale up. So, I mean, that, that would be my argument there. Um, I mean, I guess the counter would be but what's fast enough for most people yeah yeah maybe that's fair but then i don't know for laptops i, I would argue that most people don't even need a full-fat laptop to be fine with an ipad and why even have this conversation <laughs> but then the other thing is so i was talking about the hardware what else i mean my main 
thrust of my argument was you get a lot of extra stuff on x86 that you just don't get on ARM. So I thought I'd have a quick look. Um, I've put some links in here to architecture diagrams for a, a Cable Lake recent Intel microarchitecture and a similar overview for the Snapdragon 835, which is the current sort of top-end Snapdragon. So, that, I mean, Qualcomm are a bit more open than Apple, so I think that that's a, a reasonably representative modern ARM SoC, right? Yep. They have a bunch of stuff in common, right? They've both got hardware blocks for encoding and decoding various video formats. There are more on the Intel CPU and less on the the Snapdragon, but they're you know they've both got them. They've both got a fairly decent GPU on there. Again, not quite apples to apples comparison. Uh, you probably won't get full OpenGL support on the mobile chips, where you'll have the embedded GL only, and you you know you've got a bit more power and a bit more instruction support on the desktop one. They both have display controllers. Uh, you can attach multiple 4K displays to an Intel desktop chip, and I think only a couple to a Snapdragon. Well, they do support multiple displays, right? I mean. It's not very widely used, but it is there. Yeah, lots of lots of the, the phones that use these CPUs, you can HDMI out and have a, a, a mirrored screen or even a, a second screen. They both have ISPs. It might surprise you, but there's an ISP and uh, image signal processor on uh, on modern Intel chips. Uh, actually, more than that, they call it an IPU image processing unit because they've got an ISP and some other stuff that goes either side of it to have a sort of complete chain, and they've got dedicated hardware in there for face detection and things like that i mean this is to support the tablet market with cameras and uh, you know more advanced webcam features um, but it surprised me to learn how full featured the intel um, ipu was actually they've both got they both have hardware uh, encryption support for various algorithms aes etc etc but then there's a few big differences you get on the intel chips one of them i'd say is Huge caches and on-chip DRAM. So right, you've got Iris Pro machines with 128 megs of memory on-chip to support the GPU. And there's, there's nothing close to this in the SOC world, right? You've also got, as I said, I.O., and that is the big one, right? You've got PCI Express lanes and what Intel calls DMI, Direct Media Interface Links, which links the chipset, which then gives you very fast I.O. for USB, more PCI Express, SATA, NVMe drives, audio, Ethernet, etc., etc., and then interconnects between the CPU and the larger chips. So, I mean, it's not quite as one-sided as that you get some extra stuff in ARM. Like, I mean, ARM SOCs typically have built-in modems. Um, they have built-in dedicated, dedicated hardware to do visual inertial odometry for AR and VR in the modern Snapdragons. Then this isn't an Intel. Yeah. Certainly it's interesting to note there on the modem front that modem and I think... The US version of the current iPhone, iPhone 7, is actually made by Intel and put yeah. put, put in the package with the CPU. So they have some competency there. So that's, yeah. that's interesting. So basically, I would say my answer is why aren't you going to get armed? Because you just don't have all this I.O. I mean, I'm sure you could come up with some counter arguments as to why you don't need all that I.O. You can say, well, if you control all the hardware and stuff, consider the the um, base MacBook, i.e. the non-pro one, with only one port and so on. Oh, yeah. why do you need all that I.O. then, right? I mean, that's the... Yeah, I mean, even that, what, that one port's just USB. It's, it's not um, Thunderbolt. It's, you know, pretty pretty simple port. It's power and USB and that's it. Maybe it's Apple's... Maybe that's Apple trying to move people in the direction that would let them have a low-end ARM machine. But then I'd say, what's the, uh, what's the main drive in there? It's a PCI Express SSD, right? Yeah. Um... Of course, the counter to the me saying you don't get this on ARM, you do get it on some ARM chips. Uh, NVIDIA's Jetsons, their TX1 that you get in a uh, Nintendo Switch and the TX2, the uh, successor. They have PCI Express lanes and all sorts, right? You can, not as much as a 
can touch it, but then you're also climbing up the power envelope there a bit as well. So, do you? I would certainly, and I see if you agree with this. I feel that now the power consumption of the CPUs is so small that it's diminishing returns. The rest of the system actually takes up a lot more power. Like Apple took a lot of slack for the late 2016 update to the MacBook Pros where there was no 16 gig of RAM available on, or sorry, 32 gigs of RAM available on some machine and that was because of support for low power um, DIMMs uh, not being available. You know, even the DIMMs, memory DIMMs cons- consume power, the SSD oh, yeah, what's display. The yeah. is, the, is the CPU being dwarfed by the rest of the system? Yeah, I mean, that's a, I think that's a very good point, right? I mean, we're talking about 5 watts for the CPU in the smallest machines and the other machines where it's probably yeah, I guess they've got the best ratio, right? But yeah, you've got you know a few watts for your drives. You've got the, as you say, the RAM, the screen. You know, shining big bright lights in your face. That's the number one power consumption, right? Yeah, yeah. Certainly, on iPads, people have taken apart iPads and done the measurement. The screen is the thing it consumes almost all the power. And then you've got obviously your broadcasting on Wi-Fi and receiving, and this uses power. And if you plug anything in a USB, it's drawing you know five ten watts depending. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, could it replace? I'm still saying no. I, I don't even know why. I mean, to your point, why would you bother, right, when it's not? I mean, what is there to gain? Even if you took that power consumption in half, right? Two and a half watts. You're saving two and a half watts, right? Is, yeah. is that a big deal? Saving seven watts on a laptop, say, uh, which has probably got 50 watt hours of power. So it tells you, you know, that seven watts is not making a huge difference. It's not just the hardware, right? It's the software. And I, this is the main reason I think... I think they wouldn't change is it's just such an enormous effort right in the software you break all your backward compatibility you have to have new compilers new tool trains etc 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 everything you introduce the possibility of bugs from some very well tested code and so on and so forth yeah so the last time apple did this was the transition from power pc to intel x86 and that happened they had the development machines which is just a what was it called at the time a power Power Mac G5, but with an Intel board in it, that was a development machine. They announced that WWDC, which is just a Pentium 4 CPU inside it, they were they were available 2005. The first MacBook Pros and iMacs with Intel chips were 2006, and there was maybe three four years where you had all sorts of things going on to make the software possible. You had fat binaries for people who were willing and or able to recompile things, where it would you'd have the a single binary, but inside it is actually two binaries. One's the x86, one's the PowerPC. Your machine ran whatever one it needed to yeah, run the software. Uh, and then they had, uh, it was called Rosetta, which was actually a PowerPC emulation layer. Um, is that the right word? Is that what I'm looking for there? Yeah, emulated it, yeah. Yeah, that would let you run PowerPC code, so applications or binaries that couldn't be recompiled or weren't available from the uh, developer yet um, run them on x86 uh, Max. And quite famously, it took um, Adobe a long time to convert their software. Uh, I think at the time it was Creative, the original version of Creative Suite, maybe Creative Suite 2, weren't available in x86, and it took them a long time to actually get in round to having the Intel version of the code. To get back to the why, why would they even bother, I think it's way more likely, I mean, it's more likely to be for business reasons, right? They don't want to be um, enthralled to Intel and their development. I, I would say it's more likely to be a, an AMD CPU than an ARM CPU. Right, yeah. This is, this. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that when you started having almost the same thought. It's 
the sort of resurgence of AMD is going to good, be good for everybody who uses Intel CPUs, including Apple. And the competition there might be enough to have Apple hold off on any potential ARM Mac developments, even if they already have it in the works. It should, they, they probably, they've probably got develop machines, development machines, test machines. But it's, it, I mean, there's somewhere where AMD possibly do have a big advantage, which is the, their APUs, as in they have the CPU with a GPU, you know, a sort of two-in-one chip. I just done a quick Google, see if there's anything out there. There's, you know, they've got slides out there with some classic Bezos graphs. <laughs> but um, 50% more CPU performance, 40% more GPU performance than what? I don't know. But uh, previously AMD, you know, a few years ago when AMD were previously competitive, their APUs were, were you know, vastly better than Intel's. GPUs and that that is something that for Apple anyway, where they're focused on high resolution screens, could certainly be very appealing. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly Intel got their act together with this sort of um, the integrated GPUs. They're actually reasonably good now. Certainly, people who game on only them say, yeah, it's fine. You can get most things done. Um, which I guess is just more competition in the same space. A thing you alluded to earlier was that do people really need a laptop? Could they get by with a an iPad? Um, what if Apple had a separate line of machines? Like they took the MacBooks, put ARM CPUs in them, and then the software that ran on them was Windows did this recently with some version of Windows ten, but it's like a a locked down Mac OS and you can only run the software you get from the App Store. So a bit more like an iPad. Well, you're talking about Windows RT, right? I mean this is I mean I know you're talking about Windows S the recent thing, but right, the, the idea X, is yeah. Windows RT was exactly that with ARM chips though, right? Yeah. And we also saw how successful Microsoft were. Yeah, it's an interesting question, interesting thing to debate, and it's interesting to consider the the hardware reasons why why you know these things aren't equal. I mean, in short, it's more likely. I think it's more likely that the iPad Pros will come on enough that they kill off the small and light laptops, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that would be my answer. So. So we're saying no, then. That's what we're saying. I think we're. I think. I think we're saying no. Okay. Although I will then. Flip the with a maybe on the side. I mean, I, at work at the moment, I I work even equally on x86 machines and ARM machines with the same operating system. So, but same but not the same, right? I mean, then not being binary compatible means some software is not available on both, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's ne- it's never as simple as you think. Thanks for listening to Pincount. We put the show notes online at pincountpodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at the underscore accidental, and you can find Doug at Douglas F. Shearer. You can follow the show at Pincoin Podcast. We'd love to get feedback. I mean, if you if you have a different opinion on ARM and Macs or laptops in general, do let us know and back up your argument with some technical details, please, because that's what we like here. Uh, so tweet us, use the hashtag AskPincount, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you've got some longer feedback and you just can't explain how wrong we got something without reference to the tech documentation, email us at wrongontheinternet at pincountpodcast.com. Uh, if you've been burning the candle at both ends, you're hitting the uh, audions hard. I know, I just suddenly started getting very tired. I probably shouldn't have had a beer before we started. <laughs> I've been super busy. Um, so what's this you got in the after show? So I think the last episode, maybe the episode before that, we talked about this sort of Adobe announcing the end of line for Flash, support for Flash, and the nice people at the Stack Overflow blog said, well, if Flash is dead, what other technologies might be next? And they've got some nice graphs and such like. Um, basically they try and posit that either questions, number of questions being asked or the number of questions being answered 
um, give you some sort of indication of how likely a, a software product or technology is to either go out of use or to become yeah, dead. Um, and they use some examples. Obviously, Flash is going down. Questions about Flash and Flex, which is a related product, which is a sort of um, it was trying to be imagine Java swing UIs, but not quite as horrible. Um, done done in Action Script. <laughs> um, it was a sort of similar technology related to Flash, um, but trying to make sort of user applications that could be shipped as a single binary. Um, Silverlight as well, which Microsoft already announced an end of life for. Uh, so the interesting thing here is that the thing that they're plotting on their axis is a percentage of stack overflow questions but i wonder they're declining as a percentage but i could do they cover in here that could equally well be because there are more stack overflow questions right exactly if other new technologies come in does that not make the percentage of other things go down do not be better to talk about the absolute number of questions well i just mean more people writing software yeah or more people um googling stuff on stack overflow mm. so at the at the end they actually do have almost this ex- exact discussion um, okay. Um, yeah, do questions really represent the health of a technology? Because I would say, like at some point, have you not asked all the questions, or most of the questions not asked? I mean, almost every time I search for something on Stack Overflow now, it's a question that's been answered already, and quite a long time ago. It's very rare, unless it's a really new piece of technology that someone's asking about it, and it's been answered like really recently. I find out fifty percent. I search for stuff in a. Uh it's been answered years ago or I searched for something and there's nothing related on the internet ever and I'm like, oh dear, I guess I'm figuring this out myself then. Yeah, I mean, that's just the life of a software engineer. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I do some really weird stuff as well. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, as soon as you're doing weird stuff, I know you've been doing some video stuff recently. It's been quite amusing for me to watch. Um, like, there's just, there's people haven't asked the questions yet because no one's tried to do what you're doing. Or if they have, it's a competitive advantage to not talk about it and help other people. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, ignoring all this lovely data from Stack Overflow, what's dying next? What's it? <laughs> just, just take your pick or use the data. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, like like Silverlight and Flex are obvious ones. They're sort of technologies that are an- analogous to Flash. Um, Choose something consumer facing that people might have heard of. What do you think is dying? I think definitely front end. How would you describe this? Like something like jQuery, which is like a front a JavaScript library that lets you manip- manipulate the DOM. Browsers have made great progress since the early noughties, what do we call that? Between 2000 and 2010. Um, I've made great progress in being standards compliant and um, everyone's got very similar JavaScript APIs, so you can write actual real JavaScript that targets the browser rather than having to use a sort of uh, interference layer that sort of so our poly fills over all the issues all the different browsers have. I think stuff like that's going away. Um, so I think we'll see less sort of specific JavaScript framework questions, front end framework questions, unless it's React, in which case there's more questions. Yeah, I mean it's very web focused. I'm trying to think think of a good answer for this, but uh, what technologies might be next? So some of the interesting ones they've got a, they have got a is it a scatter diagram? I suppose it's a scatter yeah, yeah. diagram. So. Like some of the outliers there, things that are going down are, are, are questions about um, like um, like iPad and iPhone. People don't talk about that quite so much. They just talk about iOS because Apple's encouraged developers to make an application that works for both iPad and iPhone. The um, 
the UI scales, so people tend to la- ask less about the specific devices. Yeah, I'll, I think I'll just end it by saying what's dying off Intel CPUs and consumer equipment. 